Well, the fall weather certainly is not yet here, but the fall schedule certainly is. I know uh, if you're anything like me, your kids probably either went back to school this past week or are going back to school this coming week, and that means the fall time has certainly arrived, and as a church, we want to recognize that as well. And just a brief word to say that our fall schedule is just around the corner. It's ramping up. Our small groups are going to begin here in the next few weeks. And I would just want to take a moment to encourage all of you that if you are not yet in a small group, that would really be something that would be beneficial to your soul and experience as a part of this church family to go ahead and join. See, it's really in a small group where you are able to find the kind of life-on-life relationship of having your burdens borne and helping to bear other people's burdens, to have your heart encouraged and admonished and really given direction. Those relationships are just so important. It's not possible to fulfill all of the one another commands given to us in Scripture if all we're doing is just showing up for an hour on Sunday mornings. See, the biblical understanding is that we would truly be in one another's lives. And one of the primary ways by which we're able to do that here at New Community is by our involvement in those midweek kind of small groups. And so if you're not already in a group, this is a great time to talk to Pastor Alex and raise your hand and let you know, or you don't have to raise your hand now, but metaphorically raise your hand and, and let him know that you're looking to get involved in one of those uh, because he would be more than happy to help you. There's a number of new groups starting to accommodate everybody who needs to be in one. And so you'd really be looking at having the opportunity to join something new rather than just kind of jump into something that's pre-existing. And so want to make sure that you all are aware of that because it is so very important to the overall health, spiritually speaking, of our church family here. Uh, I also just want to take a brief moment and acknowledge the reality that this past week, uh, the wife of our dear brother, Bill Toole, her name was Susan, uh, she went home to be with the Lord unexpectedly. And so I know that's certainly a, a deep grief to Bill. Bill is actually here this morning. He has been a long time faithful deacon at this church over the course of decades and he has loved it well and now in his moment of grief and need it is imperative that as a church folks we come alongside of him and love him well and so I would encourage all of you just to seek to encourage this dear brother the fact that he is here this morning is a testimony to my heart of the kind of man that this is and his knowledge of the importance of the local church and his love for it. And Bill, I would just tell you that we all love you dearly in the midst of this hour of need in your life. Whatever you need, we're here for you. So please do let us know. But can I just stop and pray for you for a moment here as a church family? Folks, let's pray for Bill, okay? Our Father God, we do come before you knowing that there is indeed a need here in our midst today. Uh, Our brother Bill has lost his sweet wife, and we would pray that you would encourage his heart through the presence of your people in his life, the presence of your word in his heart, and through the presence of your spirit that will sustain him. Lord, may he indeed know the peace that surpasses understanding. And may this body be a body that would demonstrate great love to him as he grieves the loss of his dear wife. Strengthen him now, comfort him, and encourage him. And may we all be encouraged 
as we watch the way that you sustain him now in these days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One way for you to be an encouragement to Bill uh, is to realize that the service for Susan will be this Friday here at the church, uh, Friday afternoon. And if you're at all able to come and be a part of that, I know that would be an encouragement to his heart. And I would encourage you to mark your calendars um, for that event. John chapter 16. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles uh, to the Word of God. Did I say 16? We just skipped over some stuff, I think. I meant John 13. That's where we are. At least that's where we left off. And so we're going to go back to John chapter 13 and pick up where we left off. And you know, as we see the conversation that's unfolding here in John 13, there is some context that I think would be helpful for us to be aware of. Because just about a year before the upper room discourse took place, Peter and Jesus had what we could call a bit of a run-in that is recorded for us over in Matthew chapter 16, where in that chapter, I'll tell you the story, if you remember, Peter is riding really high because he had just had a moment of great victory where he had gotten the answer right to the most important question that Jesus had ever asked him. See, Jesus had come to Peter as the spokesperson for the disciples and had simply asked him this question, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter stepped up to the plate and hit an absolute grand slam with his answer, you, Jesus, are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Well done, Peter. He got it right. And he's feeling pretty good about himself because Jesus had commended him. Peter, blessed are you because what you've just said, that's knowledge that could only have come from my Father in heaven. And so he walks away feeling pretty good about himself. But a couple of days later, as Matthew 16 continues to unfold, Jesus begins to reveal to his followers the program for how he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, and be raised. And we're told that Peter, freshly feeling high and mighty, takes Jesus aside. You've got to marvel at his confidence, don't you? And he rebukes Jesus, we're told, and says to Jesus, no, these things will never happen to you. And in that moment, Jesus turns on Peter, and just as fast as he had risen, here he comes crashing back down to earth. As Jesus says to his most trusted disciple, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Jesus says, you're a a hindrance to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. And I tend to think that those were words that would have stung this brash and bold apostle. Words that had to have stuck with him over the next 12 months and followed him right on up into that upper room. And I think that that actually is very important context for us as we turn our attention here back to John 13. Because Peter, despite Jesus' earlier challenge to him to set his mind on the things of God, could not quite wrap his mind around the God things that are happening there in that upper room as Jesus stoops to wash the feet of his followers. 
But you know, friends, I am actually really glad that Peter couldn't quite bring himself to embrace and understand these truths. I'm really glad that Peter had all the great questions that he had there in that upper room. Because the questions that Peter has as he experiences the washing of his feet by Jesus are questions that you and I would have had if we had been there. They're questions to which we actually still need answers here in this day. And so because Peter is struggling to understand the things of God that are being done to him in that room, there are questions that he now comes to Jesus and asks. And just as quickly as the questions pour out of his heart and out of his mind and come from his mouth, the answers from Jesus are given just as quickly. And in those answers, we find great encouragement and comfort and knowledge of things that we now must understand. You know, if you weren't here last week, as some of you weren't, and for good reasons, I understand, I would still, though, strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that message because it really is foundational context to everything that is going to be said in the coming four chapters. But see... What really makes it so very helpful is that rather than just jumping straight into what we could call the theological deep end, Jesus here provided us already with a clear, graphic, vivid, compelling visual aid. If you'll remember, Jesus, the holy God of heaven, came and put the love of God on display as he stoops to wash the filthy feet of fallen men. And it's that image that just absolutely blows Peter's mind. And he's struggling to understand these things of God. But Jesus, in the text before us this morning, is going to help him and us understand the significance of these things. Peter has questions like this. When, when you first see the love of Christ, how should you respond to it? Well, Jesus will answer that for us in this text. If you're going to understand the love of Christ, what do you need to know about His love? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question for us as well. And then finally, once you have received the love of Christ, how then should you now live in light of it? See, those are all the questions that are circling through the atmosphere in the upper room that we're going to find answers to here this morning. And as you can see, those are questions that are pertinent not just to Peter and the rest of the disciples, but to each and every one of us as well. So let's go ahead and dig into this text. And, and we're really going to look together at some different stages that Peter goes through as he seeks to wrap his mind around the overwhelming love of Jesus. The first stage that we'll see here in verse 6 is what we could call an exhibition of indignation. Peter cannot bring himself to believe what is happening. See, verse 6 starts out with this statement, Jesus came to Simon Peter. Now that's a pretty simple statement, isn't it? But oh boy, does it carry a lot of room for things to come off the rails and go wrong. And the reason for that is because of who Simon Peter is. I mean, here is a guy who has made it a chronic habit to just pop off with whatever happens to be in his head. And isn't that a part of what makes Peter so beloved? What makes him so endeared to us? 
is that here's a man who is just like us. See, he's a very relatable kind of apostle. And as Jesus comes to him here in the text, well, guess what? Peter surely isn't going to let us down. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? See, as we've said, you have to understand Peter, and you can't blame him. He's trying to grapple with what he's seeing. Now, if you were here last week, you know the reality of what Jesus is doing here. He is putting on display an unbelievable manifestation of humility from the Revelation 4 and 5 God of heaven that is designed to make a most powerful statement about the nature of his love for mankind. If you were here last week, you would know that the washing of the feet is not just an event that ends here. No, it's an event that actually points ahead towards the glory of the cross and the humiliation of that event and the love of God that would be put on display for all mankind. This event, the washing of feet, is a foreshadowing of that event. And with the benefit of hindsight, we are able to see that perfectly. Are we not? That's what we brought out last week. But poor, poor Peter. He doesn't have the foresight to understand what is coming on the very next morning, nor does he have the benefit of hindsight to look back on it and seek to understand it. And so he doesn't have a clue about how to rightly respond to this display of a humble love from the God of heaven towards him. And so he is indignant. And the reason for that indignation is because he just cannot comprehend the nature of the spiritual truths that are driving the actions of Jesus here. Because, see, here in the text, as Jesus is going to begin to explain things, we find that Jesus has already turned a corner. This is not just about washing people up for dinner. No, there is a very powerful theological point that Jesus is driving at here, and he wants them and us to understand it. See, as we learned last week, what Jesus does here, it is an intentional, pre-planned picture. Again, don't forget, that points us straight down the road to the cross. And as such, there is a powerful spiritual theological point here. And that's how, with the benefit of hindsight, we've now got to understand this. But poor Peter, he doesn't get it. And so instead of getting what Jesus is doing here, he responds in a way that is filled with shame. Because he knows that he is a sinner. That's what he knows of himself. And he knows that Jesus is God. That he is perfect, holy man, clothed in human flesh. And you know that he knows that because of how he addresses Jesus. Lord, he says. He knows good and well who he is and he knows who Jesus is. And therefore, he also knows that these two things should not be mixed. And so his response to what Jesus does when Jesus comes to him is one of embarrassment and outrage mixed with incredulity. And you can really see that in the order of the words in the original language here. See the grammatical emphasis in the reading of this phrase sounds like this. Lord, you would wash my feet? That's really the tone with which Peter says this. You see, just like Peter, many people, in fact, pretty much all people, when they first see the love of Christ on display, when they first catch a glimpse of it, 
and the Spirit of God opens their eyes to the reality of what He's done, He simultaneously opens our eyes to the realities of who we are and what we've done. You see, the first thing about encountering the love of Christ is that it serves, first and foremost, as a mirror to show us something about ourselves, doesn't it? And therefore, it's very normal and natural for the first response to seeing the love of Christ for the very first time to be a response of shame, indignation, embarrassment, perhaps even outrage. Because when you look at the amazing, indescribable love of God for mankind, you see that in and of yourself, you are nothing like Him. And therefore, that love stands in direct judgment over you and who you actually are in your lost and fallen condition. And so the response of many people when they encounter the love of Christ is naturally to be embarrassed, to be outraged, to be indignant. Because for the first time, they can see the reality of who they actually are before God. See, when you begin to comprehend the love of God, you also begin to comprehend the magnitude of your sin. And you know, it may be that, that you are here this morning and you've never really embraced the love of Christ. You've never really experienced it for yourself. And, and you're, you're looking at a text like this and you're seeing just a glimmer and a glimpse of what the love of Christ is like for you, and you are embarrassed. You are, in, you are ashamed of, of your sin and who you now know you really are, and perhaps that sense is welling up within you just, just as it did in the heart of Peter as well. And friend, if that's you here this morning, let me just talk to you specifically here. Don't run from the love of Christ just because you're too proud to admit that you need the love of Christ. Don't respond like this with a spirit of arrogant indignance. No, humble yourself, turn to Him, and throw your arms around Him. See, step one in receiving the love of Christ, it is to get over yourself and the embarrassment of your need and just embrace what He came to do now for you. That's where an experience with the love of God always begins. It's my willingness to acknowledge, yes, I am filthy before you. Lord, come and wash me fully, wholly, cleanse me now. Our response can't be one of indignation. How dare you touch my feet? That can't be the response of someone who truly knows the love of Christ. But it was Peter's response because he just simply doesn't understand what Jesus is doing here. That doesn't make him an unbeliever, let me be clear. It just means that he didn't understand the imagery, but he was about to because Jesus is going to explain it to him. See, Jesus' cleansing work, as it's, as it's described here, it wasn't inappropriate, no, as Jesus was going to explain, it's, it's the only thing that could possibly work for Peter. And that's where we get down into stage two of encountering the love of God. There is a certain natural ignorance that describes the heart of every man that, that needs to be educated. And that was certainly true for Peter here in these next few verses. 
See, once you come to a place where you can recognize that you need the cleansing of Christ, well, then there are some things that you need to know about the nature of his love for you. And Peter clearly does not understand the nature of that love. And so in these next verses, we're going to see Jesus beginning to educate his ignorance because Peter didn't get it. He needed to go to school. And so Jesus schools him here in these next verses. Verses 7 through 9, we can see Jesus schooling Peter on the kind of love, the kind of cleansing that Jesus is actually offering here. See, Peter first needed to understand that Jesus is not talking about cleaning him from having dirty skin. No, when Jesus talks about cleansing here in this context, he's talking about replacing a rotten heart. See, Jesus isn't just rubbing dirt off a pretty good apple. No, he's seeking to renew one that's bad to the core. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 7, You do not understand now, Peter, but afterwards you will understand. See, in that statement, he points Peter's eyes away from the act of washing feet and towards the act that would take place the next day at the cross where he would begin to wash hearts. See, that's what he says they don't have an understanding of, and how could they? See, this whole story, don't forget, it is a metaphor about our need to be cleansed on the inside, and only the cleansing cross of Christ can accomplish that. But pre-cross, there was no way for Peter to have an understanding, and that's what Jesus says here. Now, it's interesting to notice that when Jesus uses the word understand there in verse 7, he actually uses that word understand two times, but in each instance, it's a completely separate word. In English, they just get translated as understand because we don't have two words for understanding. But in the Greek language, they're two very different words. And here's what Jesus is saying here. Let me help you understand. He says to Peter, the first time he says, you don't understand now, he's saying you don't have a knowledge of, of what I'm doing here for you when I'm washing your feet. You don't have a, an intellectual comprehension of it. And how could you, Peter? Because the image that this is pointing to, it, it hasn't even happened yet. So, so there's no way for you to understand and know what it is I'm trying to help you see here. But then he goes on and he says, but look, afterwards, you will understand and this time when he uses the word understand, it is a word that means to have an experiential comprehension where Peter, post-cross, would now fully experience the kind of cleansing that Jesus is pointing him towards. Why? Because his heart will have been regenerated. He will have permanently be cleansed. So Peter, right now, you don't get it. Intellectually, that's what Jesus is saying. But the day is coming very soon where afterwards you will have experience with my cleansing. See, that's the kind of cleansing that Jesus is pointing their attention to here. Do you see how Jesus is seeking to educate their ignorance? I mean, in one very simple statement there in verse 7, Jesus is taking their eyes off of their feet and seeking to aim their attention directly at their hearts. Do you see how he's doing that? Now, if you're in Peter's shoes, discretion being the better part of valor, the right thing to do at this moment is to say, oh, I, I can't understand, so Jesus, help me understand. 
right? Could you, could you explain what I need to know because you just told me it's impossible for me to get it right now? Oh, but Peter, that would not be consistent with who he is. Look at how he responds there in verse 8. And you just got to love this man because you can always count on him to just speak his mind. And so again, Peter continues to display his ignorance and he explodes without stopping to process at all what Jesus just said. No way, never, not to the end of the ages will you wash me. In the original, it's three negative statements. It's a trickle, triple negative statement of total ignorance. See, he hasn't been able to come to grips yet with the nature of what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus' statement about the kind of cleansing that he's offering, this cleansing, not that cleansing, it just went sailing right over Peter's head. So what does Jesus do? In his grand and glorious patience, he circles back around in verse 9 and answers him again. And this time, there's no doubt what he's pointing towards. He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. See, even Peter can't miss the fact that Jesus here is not talking about feet anymore. See, this is the principle that Peter needed to understand but just couldn't quite wrap his mind around and that we need to grasp too. The kind of cleansing that Jesus came to offer is the cleansing of a heart. It's not cleansing from the manifestation of a bad behavior over here and over there. No, he came to effect radical transformation to put a new heart within us. Not just to clean up the old one, but to replace it and do a heart transplant with an entirely new one. That's the meaning behind what Jesus is saying here. And if you would have your inheritance, your share in heaven with him, then you must first be cleansed by him. That's the kind of cleansing that each and every one of us need. And in order to get that cleansing, you have to be willing to embrace the work of Christ in order to change and cleanse you from the inside out. That's what Jesus wants Peter to understand. He knows he can't get it right now, but the day is coming very soon when Peter will get it. And friends, that's what you and I need to get and understand now here this morning as well. Because we can look back and see the nature of the cleansing that took place on the cross. And so there is no lack of understanding on our part. Ignorance is no longer excusable because the perfect picture of God's love, it has been given to us upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And so now we know and are faced with the decision of whether or not we will receive that kind of cleansing or not. This is stage two in experiencing the love of Christ. Will I believe him and what he has said as he seeks to educate me about that love or not. And if you're on the fence about whether you should believe him or not, keep on reading because Peter doesn't really get it either. Here we keep going in verses 10 through 11. See, his education isn't over. He finally understands that Jesus is talking about a cleansing that is different from the cleaning of his feet. But in typical Petrine style, he overcorrects. In fact, I think we could probably be safe in saying that he is the king of overcorrection. <laughs> Look at what he says there in verse, uh, verse 10, I believe. No, verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet only, but the hands and the head. He, he says it in a way that's as though he's putting his head and his hands out there like, do these too while you're at it. 
right? Go ahead and just give me the whole bath from top to bottom. Let's just get clean now. If, if that's what you're offering, true and perfect cleansing, well, then I want it and do it all. Just go ahead and get it done. Peter says, I feel like everything needs to be washed. But, but watch now what Jesus says because he's going to give us some powerful statements about the quality of his cleansing. Look at how Peter responds or how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 10. Jesus says to him, look, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet because he's completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean already. It's a beautiful statement about the efficiency and the effectiveness of the work that Jesus does when he comes in and cleanses our hearts. Watch what he says here. It's so important. See, you, as you go through the rest of your life, you walk as one who has already been fully bathed. If you're found in Christ and and if you stumble into sin, you don't need to be washed all over again because the cleansing work of Christ, friend, it is already sufficient for you. You don't have to keep coming back to be cleansed cleansed over and over again because the blood of Christ, that cleansing work that was shed for you, it is sufficient for all time. You too are clean already, period, end of paragraph, and full stop. You stand before God now, justified, purified, cleansed because you are clothed not in your own filthy rags, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and His work on your behalf. That's how you stand before God. And that's what Jesus is pointing to when he says here, you are clean already. You don't need a new bath. You've already been washed, Peter. That's what he's pointing to. But there's a second thing that he's pointing to here. He says, now, from time to time, yeah, you might need to wash your feet off, but you don't need to be rebathed. You see how he says that there? I mean, it's true, isn't it? That as we go about our daily lives, walking through a world that is filled with sin, there are going to be times where we will need to stop and confess our ongoing struggle with our flesh and its sin. And as Jesus says here very clearly, you will occasionally need to stop and wash the mud off your boots. But look, if and when you stumble into sin, that does not mean that your entire relationship with God has been jeopardized. It's not as though your single act of sin or multiple acts of sin have now recovered you in your old sinfulness and you've now lost your standing before God. No, that's not at all the case. And why? Because you are already clean. See, that's the statement about the quality of the cleansing that Christ has brought to us. It is perfect, permanent, complete. There is no need for us to go back and be rejustified. Yes, practically, we need to be sanctified, and that's what Jesus explains here. We need to go back and confess our sin when we see it in our life, but that doesn't mean we've lost our salvation or our standing before God has been impacted. We are clean already. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This past week, my family and I were on a hike here in the area, and I should have known because the, cloud, the sky was cloudy and it had already rained that day that it was going to get wet and that it was really wet already. But while we were out on the trail, maybe a mile in or so, we got caught out in some pretty strong rain. And by the time we got, we got back to where we were going, you can imagine every member of the party was just covered head to toe in mud. And as you might guess, my son Will was the absolute worst. The boy had mud, I mean, 
just everywhere. We'll just leave it at that, right? And so when, when we got back to where we were going, the whole boy needed washing. And <laughs> it was a lot of fun, actually. Out came the hose, right? And he got a washing from head to toe, hair and face and body and arms and legs and shoes and clothes. It all got sprayed down. And there he stood, finally, dripping wet, but perfectly clean. You know, a little later on, maybe an hour or so later, he had been outside playing in the wet grass and he had some dirt that he had gotten onto his little fingers. Let me ask you a question. How incredibly unhelpful and uncaring would it have been for me to pull the power washer back out? To, I mean, it would have been fun, sure, but it would not have been helpful to have re-soaked him. Why? Because all he needed to do was just go inside and wash his hands for dinner. He didn't need another full bath. He didn't need a power washing. And that's, that's the idea here in this text. See, once you've been made spiritually clean, you don't need to be saved over and over and over again, re-justified every time, because you're standing before God. It is purified, and if sin is found, then confess it and move on, because Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. Is that not just so very encouraging? You see, Peter, he was a little slow on the uptake here, and you can hardly blame him. But in his slowness, Jesus has had an opportunity to give us some powerful principles now about the kind and quality of the cleansing that he is offering to us. Principle number one, let me just summarize it for us. The kind of cleansing that Jesus is offering is fundamentally an inside heart kind of cleansing. Peter, the only way to be clean is if I clean you. And if I don't clean you, then you have no share with me. That's the kind of cleansing that Jesus comes to give to us. And what of its quality? Well, that's principle number two. The quality of his cleansing that he's offering is clear. Peter, once I've cleaned you, you're totally clean. And while you do need to keep pursuing purity, just wash your feet before you come inside, Peter. You don't need to be cleansed again from head to toe. My work is enough and sufficient for you. See, friends, this is why we say, step one in grappling with the love of Christ, put down the guns and acknowledge that you need him. But step two in responding is to abandon your ignorance and to believe the truths that he has presented here to you. Believe that his cleansing work is sufficient to meet your need. And then, once he has cleaned you from the inside out with his all-sufficient cleansing blood, then there is one more step that you must take not to be saved by him, but in response to the salvation that he has already granted to you. And that's the final stage of what it looks like when we truly come to understand the love of Christ. See, here in this text, Jesus makes it very clear that he expects us to imitate with each other now the same love that he has shown to us. See, if we would truly say that I know the love of Christ and I'm not indignant at the prospect of receiving his cleansing, I welcome it. And if we would truly say, I understand the kind, it's a heart change and the quality, it's permanent. We can't just stop there and say, well, isn't the love of God wonderful? No, we've got to go and do something with it now. And that's exactly where Jesus takes us here in the next section of this text. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Here's what Jesus says now. 
when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Finally, Peter shuts his mouth. There is no comment from Peter here at this point in the text, and a good thing too, because Jesus is just about to apply now for him and for each of us what he expects out of us in light of what he has done to us. Here's what he says. Listen carefully. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that's who I am. What's that mean? Well, for him to be teacher, that means that we believe that what he says is true. He's the standard of right and wrong, and when he says it, we believe it. He is our teacher, and we look to him as the authority on everything. But he's also our Lord. What does that mean? It means that because of his love for us, we now submit our lives to him and follow him in everything. That's what it means. And Jesus says, you should call me your teacher and your Lord, because that's exactly who I really am. So then, verse 14, get a load of this. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, it's really interesting to note here in the text that in your English Bible, that sounds like it's a suggestion. You know, you really should wash each other's feet. That's kind of how it sounds there if you just read it without understanding it. But it's important to notice there that the word that Jesus uses for ought is not a suggestion. It is a word that means to have a debt. It is a word that means to owe or to be obligated to someone. And therefore, here is the full sense of what Jesus is saying to us in verse 14. Since I served you with this kind of humble love, then you now are obligated, you now owe it to me, he says, to do the very same thing for one another. That's what he's saying, and that's so important for us to understand now as a church. See, it's as we show the same love of Christ to one another that we have been shown that we write our check back to him as we make relational deposits with each other. See, this is the way that people who have come to grips with the love of Christ will act. You and I, as part of the church now, we've got a sacred obligation placed on us to care for one another just as Jesus has cared for us. And, and Jesus is going to explain this in depth over the coming chapters. For instance, in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, just a few verses after the text that we're in here this morning, Jesus is just going to come right out and he's going to say it this way. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How many times has he said that in just two short verses? Three by my count. He means it. See, that's the way by which we demonstrate and repay our debt of gratitude to Christ for what he's done, that we now would be willing to engage with and love one another. So we have to understand what that looks like. But before we can understand what it looks like to actually put this into practice, let's first understand why we should put this into practice. 
Well, look at what Jesus says in verses 15 through 16 here in the text. He says, here's the reason why you need to do this for each other. Because I am the one who gave you the example of how to do it, that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, a phrase that always means pay close attention now. He says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus has just finished telling us that he's the master and he's the sender. Why? Because he's the teacher and the Lord. And so what he's essentially saying to us here is that if we are not willing to love as he loved, then that says to him everything he needs to know about how we see ourselves. To fail to love as he loved is to see ourselves as being above him or better than him. And Jesus' message to us in verse 16 could not be more clear. And that message is this. Who do you think you are? It's so clear. He says, look, the servant is not above the master. And if I, as the master, was willing to serve you, but you aren't willing to serve those who are around you, well, you need to get back down in your place and see yourself rightly in relationship to Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, look, and the messenger is not above the one who sent him. And he was the one who was sending out these apostles to go into the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to be his messengers. And so they had an obligation to act just as he acted. And that's true for us as well. See, the truest evidence of having come to grips truly with the love of Christ is not just a willingness to acknowledge your need and say, Jesus, wash me or I die. That is a necessary step, but it's not the final evidence that salvation has taken place. And similarly, the final step in in understanding whether or not salvation has taken place in a life is, is, is not even whether or not you've mastered the truth about His love and its kind and its quality. No, the greatest evidence of whether or not you truly have come to grips with the love of Christ, it's going to be your willingness to deploy and emulate that same love in your relationships to those whom Christ loves. And that is a very important and convicting statement for us to contemplate. And this morning, I want us to conclude by by just thinking through, okay, how... How can we go about doing this? How can we go about applying this truth? Now, never fear. This doesn't mean that we're going to start holding foot washing ceremonies, all right? Jesus is not instituting here yet another ordinance for his church to copy. No, what he's doing here is calling us to have a heart that looks actively for ways to serve one another, for ways to meet each other's needs, to tangibly demonstrate love for each other. And that is what I want us to zero in on here as we conclude our time this morning. What do we do with this? Well, like anything else in the Christian life, friend, you can't get to the doing before you first understand the heart. You can't just start doing from a heart that has not been purified and isn't right. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. No, the only way for you to do what, what Christ is calling us to here is if your, your heart is truly where it needs to be. So where does your heart need to be? If you've known the love of Christ, then you've got to be willing to have a heart 
that shows the love of Christ. You say, well, how do I know if that's where my heart is? It's simple. Just ask yourself this question. Do I love the people here in this room in the same way that Jesus has loved me? That is a really convicting question, is it not? You say, okay, well, how do I know if I'm loving all of you in the way that I have been loved? Well, the scriptures make that very clear to us. Are you willing to look out for the best interests of each other and put those interests before your own? Are you looking for the spiritual advancement of those that you come into contact with? Are you actively devoted to pointing their eyes towards Christ as they see Him in and through you? Are you actively watching for the needs that God perhaps has uniquely equipped you to meet? Those are four very practical questions that you can ask yourself in order to know whether or not you love the body of Christ in the way that Jesus has loved the body of Christ. And then once you've evaluated yourself, then that's the time to go and get to work. For after all, doesn't verse 17 tell us that that's what we must do? Jesus says, look, if you know these things, what things? The kind of love that he has shown, then blessed are you if you do them. Now there's a lot that could be said about how to go about doing this and loving like Jesus loved. And don't worry, we're going to say all those things because Jesus is going to be talking about this principle for the next plus or minus two chapters, all right? So we've got plenty of time to get into what this means. But let me just leave you this morning here with some very practical hints, some tips about how you can demonstrate this kind of selfless love in a body like New Community Church. First, find ways to get involved in the church so that you have the kinds of relationships that are necessary to demonstrate this kind of love at a substantive level. Look, it just makes sense. You, you cannot meet the needs of others if you do not know others. You have to have those kinds of relationships developed so that when a need arises, you can be made aware of it and then go and meet it. You can't meet needs that you don't know about, and you can't know about the needs unless you know people. So a very practical tip to all of you for, for how to go about applying the principles we've been looking at here. Get to know each other and get involved because that's how you're going to find those needs. Here's another tip. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, are you actively looking to engage with people for the purpose of actually identifying their needs? And then are you seeking to encourage them and to meet those needs? Is that desire what is driving you in your conversation with each other on a Sunday morning? And then finally, maybe one more tip, when, when God does place a need in your path, are you willing to do everything in your power to seek to meet that need, even if it requires some form of sacrifice from you? You know, people, I know that those are convicting questions because my own heart has been challenged by these things as I've contemplated them this week. But here's the bottom line. 
if you're truly going to receive and grapple with the love of God, if you're going to encounter it and to experience it, then you must be willing now, we must all be willing to show it. And we're going to consider that quite a bit more in future weeks to know exactly how to do this. But for now, it is enough for us to resolve to love like our master did. And are we not glad that he did? You know, I know Peter certainly was. And in the end, we know that he did finally come to a place where he understood because after the cross came and went, Peter looked back upon it and all of a sudden, everything became so clear. So clear, in fact, that he was able to write these words in 1 Peter 1, and I'll close with this. Having purified now your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter got it. And he did it. And he was blessed. So too must we. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our Father God,